Philippians, <coughs> Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm, I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Thank you, John. Uh, we're going to work our way through that text, so please keep your Bibles handy and we'll pick it apart, uh, deal with some of the difficulties um, and also some of the real great assurances and, and really precious things that are there as well. Um, now, you, you may have noticed this yourself, um, I think probably the Olympics has reminded me, but every, every now and again you get these people in life who just have extraordinary abilities um, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of freaks. They're, they're absolute masters of what they do. Um, we're watching the sprinting the other day, and of course, during the sprinting, there's one name that they keep mentioning, even though he's not competing. They can't help but talking about Usain Bolt. And I, look, I don't know if you remember, uh, back to the last couple of Olympics, watching his runs, um, you know, watching him get his world records in, in the sprinting, it was, it was just unbelievable. He just... I don't know how you can look so relaxed while sprinting so fast and, you know, he gets to the last 10 metres of the race and he just kind of puts it in neutral and looks around and smiles like, yeah, I'm the king of the world. But it's, it's phenomenal, isn't it? That's an amazing ability. He's, he's, he's exceptional, just in another league. Uh, you might think of others if you're, if you're into your sports, your Tiger Woods or your Michael Jordan, uh, your Muhammad Ali, these people who are just different. 
Uh, maybe non-sporting heroes, you know, your Einstein or your Nikolai Tesla or maybe in music, your, you know, your Miles Davis or your Mozart or whoever it is. But th th there's these people, you just look at them and you think, there's never going to be another one of whoever it is. They're, they're different, they're head and shoulders above the rest. They're outliers and the rest of us are, are mere mortals. Now as Christians, I think sometimes we can put Paul the Apostle kind of in that category. You know, he, he, he's a freak, he's, he's an outlier, he's head and shoulders above the rest of us and the, we're mere mortals next to him. You know, he's a heroic missionary, he's this prolific writer and powerful preacher and effective evangelist. You know, there's, there's never going to be another like him. And yes, true, as an apostle he is unique, but... Paul never actually talks about himself like that, does he? <laughs> that's, that's not how he refers to himself. In fact, he often does the very opposite, doesn't he? Consistently, he's turning the attention away from himself and away from what he's done. Yes, his experiences, his time, his opportunities, all of those things were unique, absolutely. But as he himself desperately wants us to see what drives him and what enables him to do these things, is not. What drives him and what enables him is as much yours and mine, if you're in Jesus, as it was his. That's what he wants us to see. But that kind of raises a bit of an issue, doesn't it? Because Paul says all sorts of crazy stuff about himself, particularly in this chapter, all sorts of almost absurd statements. Does that mean that these things are true for us as well? Does that mean they ought to be true? Well, that's what we're going to unpick this morning as we work our way through this, this passage. Now, in, the, uh, in Paul's time, there were whole sorts of letter-writing conventions. You know how it's kind of... Un when we write an email today, you're kind of expected to say, I hope you're doing well you know, at the start. In Paul's day, there were kind of expected things that you had to write. You started your letter by uh, saying, I'm thinking of you guys, and here's, here's what I'm thinking about, here's why I'm glad for you guys. And then you move on to talking about yourself. Uh, and here's how I'm doing, here's, here's what's been going on in my life. And that's the section that we're up to today. And what's been going on in Paul's life? Well, it turns out Paul's been in prison. <laughs> things haven't been exactly rosy for him. And we'd imagine that's not a great situation. But look at the way he writes about it. Look in verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Okay, so Paul is in prison, or at least in, in house arrest, under constant guard. But look at the tone of his writing. It is, it's just so upbeat, isn't it? It's, it's so positive. He's, he's really glad. He's really confident, despite his situation. Now, we might be tempted to think, this is a disaster. <laughs> like, utter career derailment. The highest profile church leader of the time is, is in jail, unfairly too. Surely the work's going to grind to a halt. Surely this is a catastrophe. But it's not, is it? Look at how he describes it. Uh, everyone knows I'm in chains for Jesus. 
as a result of my chains. The gospel isn't going backwards, it's actually advancing, it's actually progressing, even here. It's, it's quite remarkable. He says, even the whole palace guard, you know, the, the, the elite of the Roman military, <laughs> all of them have heard about Jesus because of my situation. It's, it's phenomenal, isn't it? It turns out imprisoning Paul is the ultimate Trojan horse. They, they, they thought they'd won. They thought this was a sign of their victory, putting him in jail. But actually, it's a sign of their very undoing. They haven't squashed the message of the gospel. They've brought it into their own house. And it's, it's infiltrating at the highest levels of Roman society. It's, it's a stunning reversal, isn't it? And that's not all. Prison is no obstacle to the gospel, but neither are rivals an issue. Look at verse 15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Now, we need to be clear here. Paul, Paul isn't talking about false teachers here. Um, he's going to address them later in the letter, and he's got uh, sharp words for them and, and for the, what they're doing. But what seems to be going on here is that there are other church leaders, perhaps of some of the, church houses, uh, the, the house churches in Rome, where Paul is, that are capitalizing on his imprisonment. You know, Paul's been put in jail, there's this void in church leadership, and they're, they're trying to step into that in a, in a way that advances, they see an opportunity. There's this, there's this gap at the top now, let's step up into that. Let's promote ourselves, let's push our agenda a bit, and, 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 and use this, which goes on to make Paul's situation more tricky. Now again, we'd, we'd kind of think, that's a disaster. You know, that rather than focus on helping Paul, people are, are jockeying for position and trying to, to kind of crowd him out, the church hero. Taking his thunder, you know, stealing his supporter base, making life harder for him. This seems like an enormous setback. And yet, what does it matter? Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. That's amazing, isn't it? Paul doesn't look at these setbacks, these obstacles, as obstacles. The way he sees them is truly astonishing. Uh, I, I grew up in Launceston, as most of you know, uh, and growing up in Launceston, I used to resent Tassie winters. Um, not as much as I resent them here on the coast, where I think they're worst. Sorry for that unpopular opinion. Uh, but, but winter in Tassie sucks, let's be honest. Uh, it's cold, it's wet, it's too long. <laughs> And it gets in the way of all the fun stuff. Then I met Melinda. Uh, and Melinda introduced me to skiing. Now, skiing wasn't our family. We didn't do that. Our family has a terrible phobia of snow and cold. Uh, but her family doesn't. They love skiing. Uh, and so she introduced me to that. Took me once and I was hooked. And overnight, <laughs> my opinion of winter changed drastically. Now, I loved winter. <laughs> Bring on a cold, wet winter with lots of snow. That is awesome. I mean, it doesn't happen very much, but when it does, great. 
More rain, more cold, yes. You know, when the, when the bomb brings out their long-range forecast and says it's going to be a dry and mild winter, boo, you know, that's terrible. Bring on the cold and wet. That, that new love, that new thing, had completely turned my thinking around. And now, now I thought like a skier. Now I looked forward to things that I'd previously hated. Now, of course, I don't ski very much anymore, so my thinking's back the other way, bring on summer again. But, but that's kind of what's happened to Paul here. This, this new love, this new thing has turned his thinking around. His love for Jesus, for this good news of forgiveness through Jesus' death and resurrection, it has entirely shifted his perspective on life. He doesn't look at life the same way anymore. Now he looks at life like a gospel person. And that explains his thinking here. That explains his radical point of view. Prison, that's, it's not the end. It's simply a new beginning, a new opportunity. Rivals, who cares? The gospel's getting preached. Isn't that the best? The gospel's advancing. That's what matters. Paul's situation, his less than ideal situation, that's not the problem. That's no problem. Because the gospel is going forth. It is breaking new ground. There are new people speaking it. It is advancing, and that is awesome. See, Paul isn't worrying about his situation. He's not anxious about what's going to be or what could be happening or how things seem to be going wrong because self isn't his focus anymore. The, the gospel is his focus. That's what he's all about. And that's what lies at the heart of all of this. It's, it's not that Paul's different. You know, that, that Paul's an outlier it's that Paul's been transformed by the gospel. And the gospel is amazing. Gospel-centeredness has changed his life from self and anxiety and selfish ambition even to Jesus first. And that's not something that's unique to Paul. Because the same gospel that did that to him is the same gospel that we've celebrated here this morning, that we do celebrate here this morning. It's the same good news that's come to us. It's the same message that changes the way that we look at the world and our own lives. We need gospel eyes when we look at ourselves, when we consider our situations, when we consider the world around us. You know, we've got that saying, you know, when you've got a hammer... Uh, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> I've seen Jethro with a hammer. I can confirm that that is true. But the same is true here. When you look through self, everything looks like an obstacle. When you look considering yourself first, everything appears like a problem or an issue or something that needs to be worked through. And our ability to, to be about advancing the gospel suffers as a result. It becomes too hard. <laughs> becomes too costly. There's, there's going to be too many consequences for things that I think are important. There could be inconveniences. See, I reckon that the biggest reason that we are not about the advance of the gospel, or the re biggest reason we don't evangelize as much or as well as we ought to, is actually our self. It's actually our selfishness, isn't it? We, we tie up self in that advance of the gospel and it becomes full of obstacles. 
inconveniences to us. You know, we see problems, it might not work, and we, we don't want to be associated with those failures. Uh, we see uncertainties, and we think, I don't, I don't know if I want to pay that cost. We see obstacles, we get scared. We don't want to risk a friendship, we don't want to make a workplace uncomfortable, we don't want to look or feel stupid. What's the cure? See the world with gospel eyes. Because the gospel turns obstacles into opportunities. The gospel turns opposition into advance. And when you look through the the gospel at the world, when you look through the gospel at your life, you'll see that too. You'll see it dramatically differently. But how? How, how, does, how does that happen? How does the gospel transform our, our looking at the world so drastically? Well, Paul actually shows us in the next part of this passage. Now, his, his mood is pretty upbeat, uh, despite his chains. And there'd be kind of a temptation for us to say, yeah, but that's because he's going to be released. <laughs> like, <laughs> we know he's getting out of jail. Maybe he knew he was getting out of jail. So that's why he's so positive. But actually, he doesn't know that. Look, look at the verses. Uh, look at the second half of verse 18. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has turned out, uh, what has happened to me, will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will be in no way, in no way, be ashamed, and will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, Paul writes about uh, deliverance in there. Um, and we, we kind of, we have a tendency, I think, to read that and say, okay, deliverance, um, we're talking about allegations uh, being dismissed, or, you know, charges being dropped. And so he, his trial won't proceed, and he'll, he'll go scot-free. That's kind of how we, we seem to read it. But that's actually not what it means. That's not what he's writing about here. The word deliverance is the word soteria. Now, you don't have to remember that. Um, But you do need to remember that every other time that is used in the Bible, it's translated as salvation or saved. And that's how it should be translated here too. He is confident that his being in jail, his being imprisoned for the gospel, will turn out for or in his salvation. But what does he mean? I mean, what, what's that talking about? Well, we can follow the train of thought. He talks about this occurring through the prayers of the Philippians and God's provision of the, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He, he, turns out, he talks about his deliverance. There's actually no full stop uh, at the end of verse 19 there. He says, this will turn out for my salvation. Uh, I myself eagerly expecting and hoping that I'll be no, in way, no way ashamed but will have sufficient courage, that as now Christ will be exalted in my body. He says, I know that no matter what happens, I won't be ashamed, but I have courage to stand for Jesus, whether I live or die. What's his salvation that he's got in mind here? It is his life in Jesus. His life in Jesus that exists no matter what happens to him. 
that goes on despite anything through all his circumstances. If he lives, he lives as one that Jesus has saved from sin. He lives for Jesus as part of Jesus' family, honouring him by sharing his name. If he's sentenced to death and he dies, he dies as one saved by Jesus from death. He dies as one confident in resurrection, knowing that death is not the end, knowing that even beyond death he'll see God face to face and honour him there. And that's how and that's why he can say that amazing line there in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because it's, it's that simple. If I live, I live in Jesus. If I die, I get to live with Jesus. <laughs> I cannot lose. <laughs> That's his point here. It doesn't matter what happens to me. I cannot lose in this situation. I am confident of my salvation. Either way, it simply does not matter. It's a bit like that, um, I think it was last week, the, the Aussie sailor... I don't, know if you, don't know if you caught this. He sails one of those, you know, dinky little dinghies that they have. They're so great. They're tiny. Uh, anyway, that, that's his job to sail one of these little dinghies. They, they over the course of the Olympics, they race, I think, five times, and you get a medal depending on uh, how many points you earn uh, ac- uh, across all those races. Now, Australian guy, first four races, I'm pretty sure he won them all, um, and he he just he absolutely trounced everyone else. He, he was so far ahead that on Friday evening, by the end of the fourth race, he couldn't be caught. Like, it just didn't matter. There were not enough points on offer in the fifth race that he could be overtaken. No, no one could catch him. And so on Friday night, he knew that he was the gold medalist, even though the last race was on Sunday. All he had to do on Sunday was turn up because he'd won. He was a gold medalist already. He, he just had to turn up. He just had to get in his boat. He could lose. He could come dead last. He could capsize. He could sink. He could probably even drown. And he was still the gold medalist as long as he started that race. He literally could not lose. And Paul is saying, that's us. That's all Jesus' people. We cannot lose. If we live, we live in Jesus. If we die, we die to live in Jesus. We cannot lose because he has won. No matter what happens, that is true. That is the good news that is at the centre of this radically different life. That's what a gospel-centred life looks like, being convinced of that truth, that Jesus has won and therefore we cannot lose. That's what it means... This is what it looks like. Look at verse 22. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Now, lots of people um, read this, particularly verse 22 and 23, and, and think, you know, Paul, Paul's kind of down now. He, you know, prison's tough. He, he doesn't see a good end. He, in fact, he sees lots of difficulties ahead. So he's, he's depressed and verging on suicidal and, and kind of in this point saying, maybe death is best, actually, because life is really tough. 
<laughs> Actually, nothing could be further from the truth, could it? Paul, Paul is just raising a hypothetical here. It's, it's like he's, he's kind of speak, uh, you know, thinking out loud for the Philippians. You know, if I was to be given the choice, uh, death now or life now, I actually don't know what I would choose because both are awesome. I don't know which it would be. But, but that's kind of the point here, isn't it? He doesn't have to choose. He doesn't even have a choice because God is the life giver. God is the life taker. And Paul knows that his work for God isn't finished yet. And so he continues and he's confident of continuing. And he's freed to continue. That's, that's how this gospel plays out, isn't it? Living, living means not only living in Jesus, but living to serve Jesus by serving his people. That's, that's how Paul speaks of it seeing them advance uh, in the gospel. The word in, in verse 25 is progress. It's exactly the same as the word advance back in verse 12. That's what living in Jesus means. Progressing, advancing in the gospel. Not only in breaking new ground, but in building up God's people and seeing them grow in it. And that's, that's what he's all about. I will live and I will use my life for you because I belong to Jesus and so do you. And that's how this gospel transformation plays out in life. We are winners already in Jesus and that frees us to have this attitude in life. See, all of that worry, all of that fear, all of that selfishness is rooted in a belief that there's something we need to achieve for ourselves or something we have to do. <laughs> And that negative things or challenging things or difficult things that are actually holding us back from achieving our potential or, or being what we have to be or, or doing what we have to do. And what Paul is saying is nothing could be further from the truth. In Jesus, you are all you are meant to be. He has redeemed you to be that. You have won in him. You've finished the race. He's awarded you the gold that he has won. He has done for us what we never could have done on our own. And he has given it freely to us. And knowing that truth reshapes the way we look at life. It gives us these gospel eyes to see life through. Not to, not to self-indulge, but as Paul says, to serve each other, to live for Jesus and serve Jesus by serving Jesus' people for each other's progress in the gospel. This good news takes life from obsessing about self-preservation to being freed to help one another. I think one of the, the great stories uh, of the game so far, I promise this is probably the, I'm not going to confirm, this is not going to be the last Olympic story I'll tell. It'll probably last another month or so, just as I forget. Uh, and Jeff has already stolen part of my thunder, but I reckon one of the stories of the games is the one that Jeff uh, mentioned about the Aussies in the decathlon. It, it was a great story. You know, this, this guy who just had to run, I think he had to get better than seventh or eighth in the, in the 1500 to cement his bronze medal. And you can see him, he's, he's struggling and he's wrestling and he's starting to fall back through the pack until his mate comes alongside and, and starts encouraging and starts... You know, literally screaming in his... I, Jeff said, go on, you can do it. I don't think that's what he said. <laughs> I don't think I can say here what he said. 
but, but you could see him. You could see him screaming and yelling and his whole race was now fixated on seeing his friend keep that position and keep going in that race. He, it was amazing. He just utterly forgot his own place. He fell back through the rankings. He, he, he was completely ignorant of everything else that was going on and just screaming that his mate would get this bronze. And that's how it is for us as well. We are free to do the same for each other. Um, not because you know, we're jeopardising our place in the, in the race, not because we could never have won anyway, so we kind of give up on the race just to help someone who could get ahead. We are free to do this because Jesus has won the race. The race is over. We've got the gold medal hanging around our neck. Our place, our victory is secure, and so we can help each other. Being confident of what he's done, we can focus on each other and each other's advance in the gospel. Maybe not screaming what that guy screamed in each other's ears. I'm not sure that's terribly helpful. But, but encouraging, pushing, driving each other on so that we can all keep advancing in the gospel. See, there's, there's no risk here. <laughs> it's not as if by helping someone else in the gospel or, or being other person focused, you're going to lose something because you've already won everything. It's yours already. You don't have to fear for anything. And so you can help each other. That is how we're to live. That is what it means to live is Christ, to die is gain. You will pay costs for living for Christ. You'll meet obstacles and hardships and humiliations. There will be sacrifices, but nothing will jeopardize your victory. Because in life and death, you belong to Jesus. Know that and dwell in that. Because when that truth is deeply embedded in us, when it saturates our thinking and our planning and our speaking, it, it utterly transforms us. All those selfish fears of, of what might be or what we might lose or what we might risk, all of those things evaporate because they don't matter. They can't take away what truly does. And we are freed, released, to selflessly and confidently live truly other-focused lives in order that the gospel would be advanced amongst us and in our community. See, Paul is no outlier. He's no freak. If anything is, it's the gospel. It's that good news of life in Jesus, a life so powerful that not even the grave can overcome it. A life and grace and love and goodness that, that is ours now and ours whatever life brings and past death itself. That is, that is radical. <laughs> that is freakish. And it's true. And it's yours in Jesus. And there in that good news is transformation is freedom from fear, is freedom from self, is release to serve, to seek the gospel advance of others, to truly partner beautifully and wonderfully in this life together. What might that freedom, that gospel-centered freedom, look like in your life this week? To live is Christ, to die is gain. We're going to spend some time in silent prayer.
reflecting on this uh, and praying to God. Uh, you might pray for, for gospel eyes to see these opportunities in life to advance others, uh, for freedom from uh, selfish fear, for freedom from being afraid to pursue them. Uh, you might confess times that you've given in to that fear and ask for God's forgiveness. You might pray, perhaps even for the very first time, that this good news of life in Jesus would be yours, that God would forgive and accept you in him. We're going to take that opportunity to pray uh, silently uh, and personally now for a time, and afterwards I'll close that prayer. So let's, let's come to God in prayer now, silently and personally.